0: The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in
1: Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground.
0: Welcome, everyone. Big welcome to anybody who is here for the first time. And uh, usually at the end of the month like this, I just remind us all about how the center operates on this, with the this circle of giving and receiving, And in many ways, it's a more challenging practice to learn how to use the center, be part of the community here, and to receive it as a free gift. And like the whole path of waking up, we want to wake up to what that's like, to receive a gift. And of course, this gift exists because of the people before us who made it possible all the way back to all the women and men folks that practice before us and so we have these teachings one generation after another and more specifically all the people who made this building and this particular center possible and then it's challenging to receive it as a free gift really let it in let it touch our hearts and not to be suspicious or not to feel uncomfortable with receiving a gift and then if at any time you feel naturally organically like you want to give back then just be aware of that movement in your heart and find a way for that to be expressed in a way that makes sense in your life and of course everyone's life situation is different so how that looks what that looks like is going to be different for each of us whether you're volunteering time or offering financial contributions to the center But this is how we've been operating since 1993 for a long time now in the circle of giving and receiving, not offering or asking or having suggested donations or fees for any of the programs, but just encouraging people to wake up to what it feels like to receive the center and the programs as a free gift, no strings attached. And if it ever arises for us to want to give back, to let that, to be aware of that and to act on that wholesome, force, movement of generosity, whatever that might look like in your life. And so, you know, as an organization, we're like any other nonprofit of this size. So we have our, you know, the expenses. We support the teachers. We support, we have three or four office staff, myself included, and then Gabe Keller-Flores, our office manager, and Shelly Graff, the associate director, and Gail Iverson, the bookkeeper. And then a building and our property in western Wisconsin that we're developing. So sort of normal for this size of a spiritual nonprofit. And so just that circle makes all of this possible. We don't really do fundraising in the ordinary sense of the word. So if you have questions about this, just see me or you can see Tom or Mary who are our program hosts today. Or Haya's in the office. You can check in with her about how this all works here at the center. We have more information, of course, on the website. And I think there's a handout out under the shelf or maybe next to the donation bowl uh, in the lobby. So you can take a look at that handout, too. And then the other thing special about today, you probably notice the big table in the lobby, lobby. So once a quarter, usually we have a potluck. And on that day around the solstices and equinoxes, we also recite the refuges and precepts. So it's one of the more formal, ritualistic things we do here at the center in line with the people who have practiced, who were, saw themselves as students of the Buddha for all these many centuries, 2,500 years or so, where we acknowledge what we're taking refuge in. So I want to talk about that today. Traditionally, we say we take refuge in the Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha, But the Buddha as a person, as a teacher, well, he's not around anymore, obviously. So it doesn't really help. I mean, emotionally, for some of you who have that kind of emotional disposition, having the sense of this historic person might be useful for you. But Buddha as an actual refuge, something to place our heart upon, well, the person won't work. What works is our own something here and now our own in our own understanding. So what does the word Buddha point to in terms of our own direct understanding? Buddha means this awakened quality of the mind or the one who knows. Sometimes it's talked uh, about as the one who knows. So we sometimes even say resting in awareness but there's something about the capacity of this mind, your mind, your heart, where instead of the mind being fixated on the particular objects that are being known in the moment, like my mind being fixated on a particular thought I have right now or a particular sight, or particular sensation, there's a way for the mind to intuit the space of here and now, the space of the present moment, the space of knowing, right? So this gets us closer to the sense of what we mean by Buddha. Not the particular objects that are showing up in the moment's experience, but that they're being known, that they're here in the space of the present moment, right? So we take refuge in that. The more we, the mind intuits what we mean, what the Buddha means by this word Buddha, or waking, being wakeful, being awakened, the more we get a sense of what non-attachment. One of the influential, well-known Thai Buddhist monks, Ajahn Chah, the way he describes this is the reality of non-attachment. So your heart, your mind, free of attachment, Like right now, in this moment, if you can intuit or sense not the mind that's attached to particular objects like what I'm thinking, what I'm afraid of, but if you can intuit or sense the mind that's not attached, that's another sense of what we mean by the refuge of Buddha, the reality of non-attachment or the space of the present moment. So it's not so much a thing, it's really more the absence of something, right? the absence of attachment, the absence of fixation, the absence of the mind doing its normal thing, which is identifying with particular objects. The object could be a thought we're having or an emotion that's arising, a sight, a sound, a sensation. But a mind that's not attached, not identified, not, doesn't have a problem with the objects of experience that are coming and going. So it's a mind that is, has equanimity in the moment with the objects that are present. So that's what we mean by Buddha. And we take refuge in Dhamma. So we take refuge in Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha. These are Pali words. So Buddha means not the person. It's pointing to this actual quality of the heart lack of a better word, you can call it this awakeness, or this wakeful quality, or the reality of non-attachment, right? So that's what Buddha means. And then Dhamma means then when, to, to whatever degree, we have some sense of Buddha as it exists here and now in the heart, in the mind, then we can have a different relationship to Dhamma, or Dharma, right? Two words mean the same thing. One is Sanskrit, one's Pali language, to languages that the teachings of the Buddha are recorded in. So the early teachings are recorded in Pali. So that's why we, because we're in that tradition of Buddhism, we use the word Dhamma. But some of the more recent traditions like Tibetan Buddhism and Zen Buddhism and Mahayana, they use Dharma, the Sanskrit version of that word. But that word means the way it is. So when we have a sense of the reality of non-attachment, then we can have an enlightened, liberated relationship with the objects that are here. Because now, because I know, I know how to rest in awareness, rest in non-attachment, then I can actually be intimate with the thoughts, with the emotions, with the sights, with the sounds, with the reality of what's coming and going as objects of experience, right? I can participate, I can engage the world of objects of rea- you know what we normally think of as reality which is just from a buddhist point of view part of reality, right? The objects, I can be intimate with the objects because I'm taking refuge in the buddha, now I know how to be intimate without being attached, without being pushed around by my likes and dislikes. So I can take refuge in Dhamma. I don't have to be afraid of the messy world, the imperfect world, the world that I can't control of emotion and sight and sound and relationship and injustice and beauty, right? All the different dance of our embodied realities. So we take refuge in Buddha. We take refuge in Dhamma, what's showing up as experience, right? The objects of experience. We're sensitive to the world through the eyes, through the ears, through touch, taste and smell, and through thought and emotion, right? That's how we know the world. That's Dhamma or Dharma. And we can be intimate with Dhamma, we take refuge in it. Because the opposite of that is sort of a shadow in spiritual life, like, yeah, I can be free as long as I'm not embodied, as long as I don't have to be a sexual being with sexual feelings, right As long as I don't have to deal with power dynamics or survival or, you know, getting along with other human beings, you know, then I can be free. But can you be free in this embodied, messy, imperfect world? You know, this human realm on this planet at this time with the forces that are swirling and moving here. That's real awakening, right? So it's about this marriage of Buddha, this capacity of the mind to be aware To be not attached, so taking refuge in the awareness, that's not the whole truth, but it's a real important pointer, like resting in awareness. So that the heart knows how to let dharma be dharma, let the world be the way is. It doesn't mean we're, we're not here to make the world a better place, but the way to make the world a better place is we have to, in this moment, we have to meet the world as it actually is. Because it is how it is right now. And to be afraid or to be closed down or to be in denial, that sets up a a relationship with the world that uh, sort of skews or distorts our engagement, our participation. So the way we change the world is we meet it we allow it to touch the heart. We allow it to come in. And what we find is it really breaks the heart. So when Buddha knows Dhamma, right? we take refuge in the Buddha that's able to know Dhamma, to take refuge in the way it is, that marriage breaks the heart open, tenderizes the heart. And then we have Sangha, that's the third refuge. So there are just three aspects of our practice one is a deepening understanding of awareness, a way of being open so that we can be intimate with Dhamma the way it is so we can participate. This third part is really showing up, not holding back, participating, engaging. So we call it Sangha. And You might hear people use that word like the common ground Sangha. Spiritual community is sort of a one more superficial definition of that word sangha, not superficial in a bad sense, but it's really talking about enlightened community, wise, fearless, able to speak truth, able to keep quiet when that's appropriate, not afraid to show up, not afraid to engage. And we're, like I mentioned early on today, We're engaging with basic friendliness, that loving-kindness, metta. We're engaging with compassion, karuna, with mudita, appreciative joy, gladness, and equanimity, upeka. These four emotions, right? That's what sangha means. Or, you know, we could come up with our own list, a lot of forgiveness and patience and gratitude and sense of humor, right? These are the qualities that actually allow a human being to show up in all their different relationships in life. So once a quarter we practice, we say together that as a community the point of being here together, of having a space, of practicing in the way that we practice, opening to the way it is, Buddha, knowing Dhamma, is to realize Sangha, Right, this way of participating in in our world right because we're no longer afraid because we're no longer seduced by our self-centered dramas then our engagement our participation we say it's free it's liberated from being fixated on our self-centered dramas and so our participation it doesn't mean we don't take care of ourselves it just means we take care of everybody Because that's what's left when we're not obsessed with our self-centered dramas, our self-centered fears, our self-centered desires. We take care of everybody, including ourselves. So our participation, our engagement is free. Free to be a decent, alive, kind, fearless human being. And uh, those who are reading along in Guy Armstrong's book on emptiness that we've been sort of using as a complement to the talks this fall and will continue through much of the winter, you can get this at Moon Palace Books, by the way. They'll give you a 20% discount if you want to read along. But this chapter 8 that some of you are reading, some of you maybe are ahead, but it's really talks about bearing with compassion. Uh, I'm sorry, bearing with emptiness. So as, we, as Buddha knows Dhamma as this simple, clear, non-attached awareness is willing to be intimate with the way it is, part of being intimate with the way it is, in a way it, there's no going back. We start to see that everything is just nature. Even your beloved ones in your life, your kids, your partner, your dear friends. They're just a stance of nature. You know, you want to say, Oh, that's Wynne, you know, or that's Sally, or that's John, or that's Dimitri, or whatever. But actually it's nature. The person sitting next to you is the activity of nature, your parent, if they're alive, nature, your cat is just the activity of nature, all those people at work just the activity of nature. And there's kind of, in this practice of waking up to Buddha, the awareness that's not attached, that's not fixed, right, is losing all ground. See, when I make Charlie over there, or Patrice over here, when I have that concept, and I'm attached to the meaning I have in my mind, oh, that's Patrice, or that's Sherry, or Tom, or Mary, all these people out there, when I define it and then get attached by my definition, right, I solidify the world in a way that doesn't align with reality. And then there's tension. Because then I need Patrice to be Patrice, and Sherry to be Sherry, and if they don't act accordingly, I have to massage the facts or control them. <laughs> Could you start fitting better my idea of you? <laughs> and then it's really hard to be around each other, you know, because we're trying to fit everyone in our boxes, you know, and we have these sort of corrupt deals with each other that I'll try to fit in your box if you try to fit in my box. And it never really works. We don't really know the box, and we can't really fit in the box anyway. And all of that neurotic stuff, in any case, is not self. It's just more of that dance of nature. It never was self. It's not a somebody trying to become natural. It's the somebody, the neurotic somebody, misunderstanding what that is. It's already nature. We're already just the activity, the empty activity of nature. So as we do this practice, we're going to need these three refuges. Because in a way, waking up is unbearable without wisdom. Why do you think we rely so strongly on our fixed ideas about things? It's our defense. In a funny way, we defend ourselves. I mean, the a Buddhist definition of an ordinary human being is somebody who's using you know, most of their life energy to defend themselves against the way it is, which is hopeless. Right? And that's really the definition of dukkha or suffering or the basic existential uneasiness is that we have this tactic as a human being to defend ourselves against the way it is. right? The way it is is it's a dance of causes and conditions. From our relative point of view, we say this part of the dance is beautiful and this part of the dance is horrific. And then we generally argue with each other about the part we think is beautiful and the part that we think is horrific. And we generally make more horrific things in that argument with each other about what's beautiful and what's horrific, right? And then there's the vast stuff that we just ignore because it's neither beautiful nor horrific. So we don't pay attention to it. And as we develop this intuition, cultivate this intuition of Buddha and use Buddha to know Dhamma, to be more intimate with our actual experience, with the way it is, then something arises out of that the beautiful and liberating side of it, it we call sangha but there's sangha is in a sense defended by this territory that we have to traverse there is a, a well-known person in our sort of US tradition one of the early pine western pioneers going to asia to learn jack engler he taught early on but later stopped being a sort of formal dharma teacher and became a PhD psychologist and in his dissertation I think at Harvard he wrote about dharma practice right as a psychological process and he s- he said the something this is a bad paraphrase but sort of the essence of this path that the Buddha taught is really a path of grieving it's a human being Grieving, letting go, experiencing the loss of everything that we thought was true. Because everything we think is true is something we think. It's a mental construction. And however we think, no matter how refined or sublime our thoughts, the way we think about things is not can never be the way it actually is. The way it is isn't isn't related to conceptual meaning. In the same way that a menu is not really in the same ballpark as eating the dish. You know, no matter how good beautiful the photographs or how good the description of the food is, right? It's not the same as the experience of having the dish. And so it's the same thing. People might philosophers or theologians might have very sophisticated ideas, conceptual meaning about the metaphysical reality or the spiritual reality or whatever, but it's not the reality. It's not Dhamma the way it is. So there's a real sense of loss. right? So we need the compassion, we need the sense of safety, that community, sangha, enlightened community, Gives us, right? Our friends who say, we go to them and we say, My God, it feels like everything is falling away. It feels like a free fall. It feels like there's no gra- ground to stand on. It feels like I don't know what end is up and what end is down. And our good Dharma friend says, Yeah, that sounds right. <laughs> yeah, that's how it is. That's how the path is. You must be doing something right, right? Instead of saying, you need to see a you know, a psychologist <laughs> and get, you know, some therapy or some pills or th- you know, whatever. You need to stop doing you stop being aware. You know? <laughs> it's dangerous. Opening to the way it is. I mean, wouldn't that be amazing if we live in a place, you know, that the existential situation depends on not looking too deeply. Not being curious i mean can you imagine if we exist in a universe a reality that is totally dependent on not being clear not being honest about how it is i mean we'd be really screwed and that's the first thing we have to decide is is that what your intuition tells you that we're existing at a time and place a reality whatever that Basically, the appropriate way through is getting really good at distraction and superficiality, right? So that's why we have Netflix and Amazon On Demand and, you know, I'm sure there are more cable television, good novels, you know, video games, fidgets, is that what they're called? What are they called? Fidget spinners? Yeah, I haven't seen one, but I've seen them in the news. (laughs) <laughs> but we we have these things to fill up space. It's like, don't look too closely, you know. And when we start to look closely, fortunately a new catalog arrives in the mail, things we might want or shows up on our screen, the computer screen or whatever, and we have something that distracts us. So when we, for whatever reason, get feel the tension of needing to be distracted and we start to peel away the layers and then there's really no going back and then then you know you're a student of these teachings, the Buddhist teachings because it's this path of awakening, path of cultivating, uncovering the Buddha, this ability to be awake without attachment, open without attachment, without fear, Open to what? Dhamma, the way it is. And that begins a chain reaction that leads us through this grief of letting go of everything the mind was taking to be ground but actually wasn't ground anyway into this more beautiful, liberated place of... It's really this activity of generosity because when we're not... Neurotically protecting the imagined sense of me, the heart is available to take care of everybody and everything. Not because there's anybody or anything that needs taking care of, because it's the only thing left. It's what happens when the ground of needing to protect me, needing to protect my opinions and ideas goes away or And it gets worn down. It's not like it just disappears on one day. But it just gets worn down. It just doesn't make sense to be so neurotic. I'm sure most of you, to some degree, have noticed, at least in places in our life, where it just doesn't make sense to be as neurotic as we used to be. I mean, we could. And when conditions are just right, we might fall back into being neurotic in a way we were 10 years ago. But through the course of practice, it's like I just can't do that suffering like I used to be able to do it. You know, I just can't get so whipped up into that tight, heavy, contracted space. Why? I'd much rather inhabit this open, ambiguous, undefined, tender-hearted, broken-hearted place where I'm just figuring things out moment by moment. I don't have a grand scheme of like being a Buddhist, right? You don't have any fixed view. That's the point. That's what Sangha means. You're not operating out of a fixed view. That tender-hearted doing what's next is the liberation, not some grand scheme of what we look like when we're liberated. Be on the lookout for that, like fulfilling some vision we have of ourselves, being a wise, kind human being, guaranteed to, guaranteed to be a setup. <laughs> and really, that's the responsibility as a good friend of someone to point out what a setup that is. Like, honey, I don't know what you're doing. I mean, mostly we need to say it to ourselves, but sometimes to our dear friends, honey, I don't know what you're doing or I don't know what I'm doing acting in this way but you know, this doesn't survive the taste test. Like This is tight. Needing to be mindful, needing to be kind, needing to be seen in any particular way is a setup. So we're really engaging this process of initially, in Buddhism we sometimes say the practice begins and ends with right view or begins and ends with wisdom. So that's Buddha. This is a w- path of wisdom. Initially, wisdom is going to be faint, but that's all we have, some faint intuition that I can trust awareness, or I can trust non-attachment. But it's faint, right? And mostly, we know we can't trust attachment. It's not so much that we clearly see that I can trust non-attachment, it's just attachment doesn't make sense. Being greedy doesn't make sense. Being angry doesn't make sense. So we abandon that. And by default, we start to trust non-attachment. Because that's what non-attachment is. It's the abandoning of greed and hate. Right? And then that deepens. And then we are able to connect open to Dhamma. And we start to sense the freedom of Sangha, of that Open, intimate participation and engagement, freely being a human being. And it just like, wow, I handled that situation in a really beautiful way, precisely because I wasn't acting out some idea of who I should be in this moment. It was just nature, just nature happening, just organic. And it felt really free. So on the Sundays, when we do the Refugees and Precepts, we do it together. I think it's page like 36. We'll end doing that. Then the children will come in. Mary, maybe you could mention to the children that because we're doing the Refugees and Precepts, they don't have to come in today. And they could just join us at the potluck in about 10 minutes. So it's on page 35. And we need five volunteers to read each of the five precepts on page 36 and 37. So who would like to read the first? Do you want to do it, Haya? Who would like to do the second one? Jim, the third precept? Charlie, the fourth? Somebody want to do the fourth? Cherry, and then Andrew, you want to do the fifth? Good, and then you might notice some of us like to use this gesture. It's called Anjali. I learned it first as a Catholic. (laughs) But there's something archetypal about this gesture and uh, just a gesture of respect and gratitude. So use it if you like. So let's do it first. We'll start with the namotasas. It's acknowledging our original teacher, the Buddha. tasa Bhagavato, Arahato, Sama Sambuddhasa Namo Tassa, Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambuddhasa Namo Tassa, Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambuddhasa Budang Saranangacchami Dhamang Saranangacchami Sangang saranaṃ gacchāmi Dutiyaṃ pi Bodhaṃ saranaṃ gacchāmi Dutiyaṃ pi Dhammaṃ saranaṃ gacchāmi Dutiyaṃ pi saranaṃ gacchāmi Tatiyaṃ saranaṃ Tatiampi Damang Saranang Tatiampi Sangang gacchami. I take refuge in the Buddha, trusting inherent peace and freedom, a heart free from clinging. So just contemplating that for a few seconds. And now the second refuge. I take refuge in the Dhamma, trusting mindful awareness of the way things are. Just sensing that directly for a few seconds. And then the third. I take refuge in the Sangha. (coughs) Show us the way. Good, and we'll do the five precepts now. First, the Pali language, then we'll read it in English, and then we'll listen to one of our community members <coughs> read Thich Nhat Hanh's comments. He's a very well-known Vietnamese Buddhist monk and he has refl- uh, written these reflections on each of the five training precepts. So let's do the first. Panatipata, where <coughs> Sikha samadhiyami. I undertake the training to refrain from harming living beings.
1: Aware of the suffering caused by the destruction of life, I am committed to cultivating compassion and learning ways to protect the lives of all beings. I am determined not to kill and not to let others kill and not to condone any act of killing in the world. In my thinking, and in my way of life. This is the first of the five mindfulness trainings, and I vow to study and practice it.
0: So we just take a few seconds and reflect on what that might look like in our lives, this commitment. And now the second. Adinadana. Where Amini Sikapadadang samami, I undertake the training to refrain from taking that which is not given.
1: Aware of the suffering caused by exploitation, social injustice, stealing and oppression, I am committed to cultivating loving-kindness and learning ways to work for the well-beings of all beings. I will practice generosity by sharing my time, energy, and material resources with those who are in real need. I am determined not to steal, not to possess anything that should belong to others. I will respect the property of others, but I will prevent others from profiting from human suffering or the suffering of other species on earth. This is the second of the five mindfulness trainings, and I vow to study and practice it.
0: use your imagination. What would that look like in our life? Now the third. Kamesu mitchachara where amini sikapadang samariyami I undertake the training to refrain harm through sexual
1: misconduct. Aware of suffering caused by sexual misconduct. I am committed to cultivating responsibility and learning ways to protect the safety and integrity of individuals, couples, families, and society. I am determined not to engage in sexual activities without love and commitment. To preserve the happiness of myself and others, I am determined to respect my commitments and the commitments of others. I will do everything in my power to protect children from sexual abuse and to protect couples and families from being harmed by sexual misconduct. This is the third of the five mindfulness trainings, and I vow to study and practice it. And Now the fourth.
0: Musawadaveramani Sikapadang samariyami I undertake the training to refrain from false and harmful speech.
1: Aware of the suffering caused by unmindful speech and the inability to listen to others, I am committed to cultivating loving speech and deep listening in order to bring joy and happiness to others and relieve others of their suffering. Knowing that words can create happiness or suffering, I am determined to speak truthfully with words that inspire self-confidence, joy, and hope. I will not spread information that I do not know to be certain, and will not criticize or condemn things of which I am not sure. I will refrain from uttering words with the intention of causing division or discord. I am determined to make efforts to reconcile and resolve all conflicts, however small, this is the fourth of the five mindfulness trainings, and I vow to study and practice it.
0: And now the fifth. Sura Maryamaja where amani sikapadang samariami i undertake the training to misuse of intoxicants aware
1: of the suffering caused by unmindful consumption I am committed to the cultivation of good health, both physical and mental, for myself, my family, and my society by practicing mindful eating, drinking, and consuming. I will ingest only items that preserve peace, well-being, and joy in my body, in my consciousness, and in the collective body and consciousness of my family and society. I am determined not to misuse alcohol. Or any other intoxicant or to ingest foods or other items that undermine spiritual growth such as unwholesome TV programs magazines films and conversations I am aware that to damage my body or my consciousness with such poisons is to harm all beings I understand that a proper diet is crucial for self transformation and for the transformation of society this is the fifth of the five mindfulness trainings, and I vow to study and practice it.
0: And we end with the bottom on page 37. Ida me silang maga falanyana sa pachayohotu May my conduct conduce to attainment the highest fruits of liberation. Taking refuge, undertaking the five mindfulness training and practicing the way of awareness and insight gives rise to benefits without limit. I offer to share all blessings and merit with my parents, teachers, family, friends and with all beings everywhere. May this life and practice contribute to the great stream of causes and conditions leading to happiness, peace, and for all beings. May all beings be happy. So that's our quarterly Refuge and, uh, refuge and Precept recitation. And this uh, book, we're actually redoing our guidebook, our chant book, But this book is currently up on the website, so if you want to incorporate this into your practice, please print yourself a copy of it.
1: This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org.